You're listening to Design Tomorrow. This is the sound of the future. Well, actually, it's the sound of one idea about how the future would be. Now, if you didn't recognize its startup chime, this is the sound of a robot vacuum cleaner. A Roomba, to be specific, though there are many other robots with different names that do the same thing. You just press a button and they make their way, their own strange, very inhuman path, through your home, cleaning your floors as they go. Over half a century ago, the idea that robots would clean up after us was very much central to expectations about the future. But back then, no one would have imagined a spinning plastic disc the size of a stack of dinner plates scooting over their floor. And even if they did, they would have at least given it a face. Here's what I mean. You must be Henry's new assistant. My goodness. Yes, ma'am. We're vacuum cleaner. Now, if you don't recognize these voices, what you're hearing is a clip from the Jetsons. This clip is more than 50 years old. In this scene, Jane Jetson is talking to a robot assistant, which is basically a talking file cabinet mounted on top of the legs of a rolling office chair. He's got arms that look like wrenches and vice clamps and a head that looks like a frying pan with eyes and an antenna sticking out. Not exactly a work of deep imagination. But then he meets Rosie. I am Rosie. Rosie. Rosie is the Jetson family's robot housekeeper. She's basically a mechanical Mrs. Doubtfire, meaning she looks like an ambulatory mailbox wearing a maid's uniform. Now the thing is, These robots may have been characters in an animated sitcom, but they look much sillier today than they did when the show first aired. And that's because we have the benefit of hindsight. See, our parents thought that one day, we'd have a robot that would do things for us. But that they'd still do them pretty much the same way we do. They expected a robot that could use a vacuum. Instead, we got a robot that is one. And that's why the Roomba is kind of the perfect representative of the future. The real future. It's an incremental step forward that wouldn't be particularly shocking to an inhabitant of the past. That is, once they knew what they were looking at. And it might take a little explaining that this thing is actually a vacuum and a robot. But they wouldn't need to know the actual technological threads that produced it. See, for those of us paying attention over the years since the Jetsons, a couple of key things have happened that make the Roomba inevitable. First, companies like Dyson helped us understand that engineering still has something to offer the humble domestic vacuum. So we got sleeker, more energy-efficient, and bagless vacuums. And then Google came along and helped us to understand that the algorithm can offer us information and answers we didn't even know we needed. You put those two things together, and you get a vacuum that doesn't need a person to push it around. Instead, it traces an autonomous and insect-like path across the floor, learning your space in its own way, but keeping up its end of the bargain. Your floors get cleaned. You can even teach it to clean on a schedule so that you don't even need to press the button. And the latest model will actually empty itself. Fully autonomous. 
actually kind of a paradox. When you start to think about it, the Roomba feels pretty futuristic. This little AI cleaning up your house for you. But then again, when you start to think about it, you realize it's exactly the sort of thing we should have now. After all, you can buy a Roomba today at Target. So, as impressive as the Roomba would be to the Jetsons generation, it isn't exactly the future artifact we of the 21st century have been waiting for. But I'm also not sure we know what that would look like. And that's the point. Every vision of the future is a better index of the present from which it came than whatever time it imagines. So today, I want to look back at some of the things we believed would serve as landmarks of the future. Not to point out how quaint they are or to dunk on the blind spots of the past, but so that we can better understand why, no matter what shiny new objects we make and use, we never quite feel like we've gotten to the future. Why it's so difficult to recognize how far we've come. You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler. Stay tuned. Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human, which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter, at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co. I'd love to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show. Wichita, Kansas, in the very center of the United States, the housing problem brings out a circular dwelling built of aluminum and plastics. In 1945, about a decade before the Jetsons, the architect Buckminster Fuller created something he called the Dymaxion House. Dymaxion was a word he used a lot. It's a mashup of the words dynamic, maximum, and tension. All concepts that Fuller had made central to his investigation of the world and the things he hoped would improve it. Now, if he had one motto, and he certainly did not because Buckminster Fuller lived his life in a constant state of outward processing, hardly settling on an idea long enough to properly brand it, but if he had, it would have been doing more with less. And to be fair, that is a phrase he used often. But to Bucky, the Jetson's future would have probably been equal parts appealing and absurd. After all, he believed we already had enough brain power and resources to all live at an equally high standard, no robot housekeepers necessary. Here's Bucky. This is the the real news of our century. It is highly feasible 
to take care of all of humanity at a higher standard of living than anybody has ever experienced or dreamt of, to do so without having anybody profit at the expense of another, so everybody can enjoy the whole earth and can all be done by 1985. But Buggy also believed in standardization, which, when you dig further into his work, is at the core of what he meant by living well. What he didn't have in mind was everyone in their own artisanal but gilded all the same 4,000 square feet. The Dymaxion house, his vision for scalable living well, maxed out at 1,000 square feet. And that's not all that made it a radical vision for how we might live. Instead of a foundation, this cornerless cottage is suspended from a central mast of stainless steel. The engineering principle, with the safety factor of a suspension bridge, permits new ideas like a revolving roof, which gives a complete change of air every six minutes. Using a model, the inventor shows how circular design makes the best use of floor space. Using new war-developed lightweight metals and prefabrication of parts by mass production, this home of living room, two bedrooms, two baths and a kitchen can be economically produced and will contain a compact heating and air conditioning unit. Basically, Bucky thought that the best home was a completely different kind of structure, one that operated more like a unified machine system than a housing for many. That looked like a flying saucer, like it might spin off its foundation and take off for the stars. I mean, we could do worse, right? But there is a reason we're not all living in Dymaxion houses now. The Dymaxion house was expensive. Each one cost an average of $6,500, which, in mid-century money, was roughly 60% more than the average new American home cost. And though it represented a more futuristic form of living than most homes at the time, the advantages of its design were things that would have made it far more effective and needed elsewhere. In harsher climates, in more barren landscapes, in less established communities. And that last point is the key. Buckminster Fuller was a futurist architect coming from the modernist perspective shaped by visionaries like Le Corbusier a French architect about a decade his senior. Both believed in radical standardization of using modern, mass-producible materials like steel, plate glass, and reinforced concrete to bring order to the chaos of urban areas that had emerged ad hoc. Not order simply for the sake of control, but order they believed was necessary to properly distribute the benefits of urban life. It's hard to argue with that. But one of the first criticisms of the Dymaxion house was that its design left little to no room for the cultural aspects of architecture, for expression, for personal touch. It was entirely machine-made in a way that was so ahead of its time as to feel completely contrary to all that would have been associated with home at the time. And generally, that sort of sums up the cultural response to architectural modernism. One of the best technological and cultural critics working at the time, Louis Mumford, chided modernists like Le Corbusier for imposing structures upon the world that had no reason to exist other than that they had become technologically possible. That the world can't be designed from the top down or from the outside in. That cities are complex because people are complex. Here's Mumford himself. Today the city is a mixture of the new creative and the old destructive forces, ranging from helpful cooperation 
to brutal regimentation, from warm-hearted communion to savage violence. If man himself is to survive today, he must strengthen the creative elements in the city. And really, the world didn't need to read Mumford to put their agreement to work. No one bought the Dymaxion house. Actually, the science fiction writer Robert Heinlein famously ordered one but never got it because they were never put into production. You really can't get more poetically ironic than that. So it makes sense that futurism kind of died off in architecture and was resurrected in what are comparatively the weeds of culture, the products we hold in our hands. Paving a way to the future with hyper-controlled and, in many cases, literally paved surfaces proved frighteningly inflexible to the way we actually live, to the quirky and organic way in which we emerge individually and collectively. It left no room for the short-term ebb and flow of sensibilities unique to human life. And it's also kind of ironic. Futurism is alive and well in consumer product development in the sort of device you may be listening to right now. But that device isn't likely to last very long. The next device will pick up where it left off. It's almost like we're hitchhiking our way to the future on so many different machines that when we get there, we'll have no idea how. That's the irony. That futurism today is thriving by way of objects designed to exist for a tiny fraction of the time the dwellings and spaces we inhabit will. On the one hand, it means a lot of frustration and disappointment and waste. But on the other hand, it may just be a basic practical imposition on the mode and pace of futurism, that the future is established from the inside out. First, in a relay of the atomic units of culture, of units of energy and materials and short-term possessions, and then outward to the machines and systems that consume, process, and reconstitute those units, like cars and houses and spaceships, and then to the larger bodies of culture, like infrastructure. And that means a constant existential temporal flux, pockets of future and pockets of rot, emerging within layers and folds of stasis, always shifting the balance of the system. Of course, we're talking about the future as defined by designed realities. What about the future as described by designed fictions? As a child of the 1980s, no other depicted future set my expectations more than the movie Back to the Future, Part 2. Marty! You've got to come back with me. Where? Back to the future. Now, 30 years later, I feel obliged to amend that statement with a series of adverbs. No other depicted future cartoonishly, irresponsibly, unjustifiably set my future expectations. Hey, Doc, you better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Roads. 
you were on the internet at all four years ago, then you had to have encountered one of the million variants of the It's 2015, Where's My Hoverboard? Or Five Things Back to the Future 2 got wrong clickbait articles dunking on the 1989 film for its failed futurism. 2015, after all, was the year that Marty and Doc Brown traveled to, this time in a trash-powered flying DeLorean, and as it turned out, it was a glorious future of hindsight anachronisms rife for the picking some decades later. Because really, have we actually been waiting for self-lacing shoes, shrink-eating pizzas, dog-walking drones, double neckties, and hoverboards? Did we actually think that once we could check all those things off our list, we'd have arrived at the future? If we did we should have known better. After all, in a pivotal scene in the movie, future, middle-aged, puffy, and wrinkled, sad-suit, double-tie-wearing Marty is fired over video chat. Here's my card. Scan it. I'm in. Thanks, McFly. I'll see you at the plant tomorrow. Thank you for using AT&T. McFly! Fujitsu-san! Konnichiwa! McFly! I was monitoring that scan you just interfaced. You are terminated! Terminated? No! No! It wasn't my fault, sir! Now, the video chat bit was kind of on point, as it turns out. But then his boss puts it in writing by, wait for it, faxing Marty his official termination, which is printed out on a dot matrix printer. I'm setting him up! Read my fax! Now, it only would have taken a few years of distance for that to feel like a misfire. Oh, this is heavy. Similarly, I saw another piece recently that got an equally hearty chuckle over 1995's Strange Days, a movie that depicted a future in which extreme life logging is possible and our memories are basically a narcotic to which we've become very addicted. Okay, so tell me, tell me, um, have, you ever, have you ever jacked in? Have you ever wired tripped? Uh, no, I, no. A, a virgin brain. Good, good. Well, we're going to start you off right, okay? Just tell me, just save us some time. Tell me what you know. Clips, right? Clips, right. Now, listen, I want you to know what, what we're talking about here, okay? This is not like TV, only better. This is life. It's a piece of somebody's life. It's pure and uncut. It's straight from the cerebral cortex. I mean, you're there. You're doing it. You're seeing it. You're hearing it. You're feeling it. Now, despite scooping Black Mirror by about 15 years, Strange Days gets no credit because its future memories were stored on, wait for it again, mini discs. I mean, come on. Everyone knows we'll use a tiny subcutaneous chip instead, and all the data will live in the cloud, and watching them obsessively will only destroy relationships that were doomed anyway. Well, such is the moral of the story, according to Black Mirror's episode, The Entire History of You. The truth is, only time will really tell. But that's the benefit of timeliness, isn't it? You get to be right for a little while, but that's it. The story is the same, it's only the newer, shiny accessories that make it seem more plausible. (laughs) 
Whether we're looking at technology or architecture or fiction, measuring up expectations with reality tells us something we already know. We're not very good at predicting the future. Sometimes we overshoot, sometimes we undershoot, but every time we have the same blind spot. It's called the present. The present is why Marty McFly's future son zones out with a VR headset, one that actually looks pretty darn Oculus-like, if you ask me, in the same future where Marty Sr. gets fired over facts. In 1989, the internet was still something you accessed by hacking a phone line, so why wouldn't the fax machine be the future's terminal? The many incremental steps after Behold, Internet, that have brought us to what we of 2019 think of when we use the word internet were too numerous and, in the aggregate, much too dense a tangled web of causality and free will that anyone 30 years ago could have sorted out accurately. But one thing is certain. Anyone of 1989 would be astonished by the futurity 2019 has to offer. We have the internet, and it's everywhere. Connection to the internet is both the key feature and the neato bell and whistle of just about every new product released now. And that's driven the creation of all kinds of things that a time traveler from 30 years ago would find fascinating. The computer, of course, which would look expectedly sleeker, but would still be identifiable. The smartphone, which, yes, would look like the future's phone, assuming it was held up to somebody's head who talks into it, which, come on, nobody does anymore, but would otherwise need to be explained in order to impress upon our traveler that it's not just a better phone, Walkman, Game Boy, calculator, whatever. This thing is the tricorder. It's Al's handheld Ziggy terminal, but then they'd still need to see it in action in order to get the massive leap forward that software and processing power has made. And they'd have no idea that we traded the customization and endurance of the 80s PC for smallness, cheapness, and standardization. But I'll tell you one thing, they would definitely want one. And we have the tablet, which is all that stuff on slightly bigger screens. But hey, they'll think it's neat because it's the pad every next generation geek wanted. We have smartwatches, which will make a great impression because geeks of 1989 dreamed of being Dick Tracy but they had to fake it with a calculator watch. No more. We have digital cameras. And by the way, the first commercially available portable digital camera in the United States was the DICAM Model 1, released in 1990. It was black and white only, very low res, and very expensive, $1,000. Now, assuming our traveler from 1989 knew about this thing, which they probably didn't, their brain will already be all over the carpet because you showed them your smartphone, which is also a camera. Now let our time traveler follow you around for the day and they'll see many other wonders everywhere they look. Electric cars, plugged in and ready to drive, video chat, search engines, Google Maps, social networking. They'll have no idea, but you'll explain these things to them. iPad cash registers, Apple Pay, parking cameras, drones, solar panels, touch-operated parking kiosks, outpatient procedures for things that used to mean weeks in hospitals thanks to laparoscopy, and all kinds of embedded progress that isn't as immediately recognizable. Like flat-screen TVs, energy-efficient appliances, the Nest, Sonos, alarm clock lamps that emulate the sun by gradually lighting up rather than shocking you awake with shrill beeping, etc., etc., etc. And God, that's an incomplete list. Oh, and they'll notice how everyone spends tons of time watching TV, but with these little boxes made possible by three things 1989 didn't think much about. 
the internet, video on demand, and at least three major corporations that didn't exist yet. You get the point. The future is here. It just doesn't look like the future because it's the present. We may take it for granted, but our present, despite any complaints we may have about it, offers so many things that would greatly exceed the expectation of our forebears. And of course, many things, both physical and not, that would be pretty disappointing. But there's that word. Things. Things are an index of experience. They're what we make to meet present needs and what we make to anticipate future ones. But they are not the future. It's funny how the future of blank is almost always filled in with a magisterium, but demonstrated by a thing. So the future of computing usually means computers. The future of entertainment usually means devices, cameras, TVs, boxes, and files. Even the future of healthcare usually means things. Chemical compounds, robots, screens. The future has become a shorthand for product development and industrial design. And largely, that's okay. We are a creative people, after all. We make things. In fact, we understand the world and ourselves by making. But surely, there is a future beyond things. What about the future of being? The future of relationships between people? There's certainly a profound connection between the things we make and who we are as people. Sometimes more than others, it seems like a chicken and egg relationship, which comes first, isn't as clear as we might assume. For instance, would I be the same me had I lived 100 years ago? Probably not, in so many ways. But on the other hand, I have choices today about who I am and who I am going to be regardless of any technology anything that is available to me now or that I might be interested in waiting for. I can choose to make fitness a part of my life, regardless of whether or not there's a good wearable out there that will count my steps and spit out a spark line at the end of the month. I can choose to make eating well a part of my life right now, regardless of whether or not there's a service that will send me a deconstructed meal in a box. I can choose to make mindfulness and meditation a part of my life, regardless of whether there's an app for that. I can choose how I spend my time without offloading those decisions to a digitally mediated relationship with a coach, a therapist, a project manager, or an AI. I have choices, so many choices, about how I live and nurture my character that are completely independent from the things that are made for me or even the things I make myself. There is a beautiful future ahead, full of fascinating, wonderful things. But it would be a mistake to think that the future can only be seen through things and a shame to arrive there empty of self. Now is the time to plan for that arrival. Not for what will be there waiting for us, but for who we will be when we get there. Who are we? Are we growing in consciousness? in maturity, in empathy, in wisdom. In light of these questions, the present becomes all the more valuable, and the future can wait. The future is the present's dessert, 
as in get now right, and later will take care of itself. for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating or a review. This show's future, its actual future, doesn't really rely upon ratings and reviews. I choose to make it, and its future is based on whether I keep choosing to make it. But I'll be honest, every review, every rating, Every star, every tweet, every email I get from you, it all helps. Your feedback has encouraged me along the way. And as we get closer to marking one year since the show began, I feel so grateful for how much positive affirmation you've provided me. It's helped me trust that whether or not there is a future for this show, its present is good. Thank you for being a part of that. Meanwhile, week in and week out, I will continue to preach the good news of the makeable future, the gospel of maybe, of perhaps, of if that's what you want, then it can be so, against the lie of inevitability. I can't predict the future. No one can. And while I don't believe in a universe so rigidly determined that my choices don't matter, I do believe that even if the universe worked that way, choices, intent, they still matter. Because their value isn't in constructing logically coherent cause and effect, in wiring reality in series, but in shaping minds and hearts right now. A better future isn't really about things. It's not about structure at all. It can't be engineered. It's about who we will be in the future which determines how we use things, how we structure our world, and how we occupy it together. And that is why what we do and think today can create a better future. I'll see you then. Thank you.
Dad taught me about these. Here's Wild Gunman. How do you play this thing? I'll show you, kid. I'm a crack shot at this. You mean you have to use your hands? That's like a baby's toy. Hmm.